0: Hope you're having a fantastic day and a wonderful week. Welcome to another episode of We Aren't Dead Yet. I'm Emily Armstrong, creator of the TTRPG system, Quests and Quarrels, as well as the settings Beckettville, Culinary Punk, and Elder Space. I'm here with Dazzle Cat.
1: Hello, I am Dazzle Cat. I am the creator of the TTRPG, Meaty Bones, as well as the worlds of Pangorio and Hypnosium. I am here with Sapphire.
2: Hi there, my name is Salfa Burnell. I'm a best-selling cyberpunk and mythpunk author and an editor for a small press. I've been in the fiction sphere for more than 15 years. And I'm going to remind everybody today, don't worry, there's always something we can do because we aren't dead yet.
1: Okay, happy, well, I don't know what is happy news, but interesting news. Hasbro seems to be Trying to sell its IP of D&D to Tencent. Well, uh, according to Pan Daily, they said they have exclusively learned that the American toy company Hasbro is seeking to sell its well-known IP Dungeons & Dragons, and Tencent is one of the potential buyers. And then, if you look at some other reports, you see that
2: even just two hours ago, somebody from D and was saying, "Actually, we're not looking to sell anything. Look over there. Don't uh, don't look at the man behind the curtain." So we don't know what's going on, but there is more and more reports confirming that there have been at least casual talks about selling D and
1: think the Wizards of the Coast spokesman their final sentence, we don't comment any further on speculation or rumors about potential M&A or licensing deals. So I'm, I'm thinking that this is probably talking about further licensing for Larian Studios, which is uh, partly owned by Tencent and did uh, Baldur's Gate 3, which was a fabulous hit. My personal take in, in it is that they're not selling the whole thing, but they must be doing something in the digital realm.
2: Yeah, so when you are licensing certain aspects within a world build for purposes like Larian Studios making Baldur's Gate 3, what was about Baldur's Gate? You know, we are seeing certain areas of the landscape in Faerun, but we're not seeing all of them. Neverwinter was mentioned once or twice. Waterdeep is mentioned a couple of times and depending on if you play through the Gale romances, you may see a vision or two of of, uh, Waterdeep. But For the most part, they keep it contained. So if you want to, say, negotiate a license to use a certain piece of a greater world build, it's far less expensive to just license for specifics than it is to say I want to use anything to do with D&D. So I don't know exactly what the deal was what when Larian licensed D&D to make Baldur's Gate 3, but... What I do know now is that Hasbro has lost half a billion dollars in the last few quarters. And eventually something's got to give. They've already sold E1. So they sold Entertainment 1, which was, they just sold that to Lionsgate, which was their kind of movie-making platform. So, you know, the Transformers movies, the G.I. Joe movies, different movies like that were coming out of E1. That one just got sold off to help cauterize the damage that has been done by poor toy sales and, and some other business things that I'm not going to necessarily go into.
1: And last year, over 2023, they laid off 1,900 employees in total, which is about 20% of their workforce.
2: Which is also something that has a tendency to take place before you're going to sell something. You're going, you know, and that's, I think, where a lot of the rumors are coming from. When people noticed that Hasbro laid off a whole swath of their staff, you know, an incredible amount of people. One, okay, they're clearly bleeding money in some ways, they need to cauterize the wound. But two, that's the behavior of companies who are preparing to sell it to someone else, because that's someone else who is taking over that company. The likelihood they're going to keep every single member of the staff is usually quite low. So you want to kind of trim the fat and things like that to make it more desirable as a purchase. That may or may not be what Hasbro is doing. I am not sure. I have no idea. But what I do know is it's interesting that the rumor is Larian was offered D&D. And them being a company, even though Baldur's Gate 3 has been such a financial success, they're still not large enough to take on that entire cost. And so apparently the rumor is that Larian went, well, we can't afford that. But one of our investors that owns 30% of Larian Studios, Tencent, they can. Yeah. And there may or may not have been a handshake in the middle there. We don't know. We'll find out as time goes on. Tencent is a Chinese-based company, and they have been in charge of quite a few different games.
1: They're huge in the video gaming industry.
2: They're sizable, but they'd have to be. Like, for somebody to take over Dungeons and Dragons, unless the sale amount is way lower than people expected, you would have to be one of only a few players that could afford to take the entirety of the DD IP.
0: There were rumors that they were going to purchase the entire IP of, uh, of D&D but I don't believe that that I believe that that's been dispelled at this point I think that they're probably just in talk to cut a deal for
2: licensing By Baldur's Gate 4 which is an inevitability at this point yeah it better be <laughs> yeah well I think too, you know there is a rumor in the mill going around that Hasbro is keenly aware that TTRPGs became incredibly popular during the pandemic But since there has been a drop off as people returned to their everyday lives going back to work. So the sort of bubble that happened a few years ago during the pandemic, it's happened. The likelihood is we're not going to see the same amount of growth that we did back in 2020 of people picking up TTRPGs. Instead, people have purchased their TTRPGs, they've bought their systems. And so there's going to be less people looking for new systems unless. Dungeons and Dragons keeps making things that a lot of people consider as mistakes, and then people are going to be dropping D and D and looking for you know Tales of the Valiant or Pathfinder or you know Quests and Quarrels Meaty Bones. You know like they're going to be looking for a different system to play with. And uh, my advice is, you know, if you play D and D, that's great, fantastic, good for you. Go buy Meaty Bones when it comes out and go buy quests and corals (laughs) those are going to be the only two systems you're ever going to (laughs) need so let's talk villains shall we i wanted to open up today with fictional villainesses with a quote by debbie felton debbie felton is a professor who focuses on female monsters villains on mythology and on ancient literature and the presence of females within that literature Again, when I'm saying females in these sections, I am speaking historically of a gender binary. That does not mean I necessarily believe in a gender binary myself, but just the fact that inside the historical context, we do have to recognize that for the majority of human history that we have on account, aside from certain minimal offliers, most people believed in a gender binary. So I'm not making a decision or anything like that on what you should believe about gender and about the spectrum of gender or a binary or whatever it is that you believe, you know, believe what you want. I'm just here to talk about literature and I'm going to mention a lot of mythology and the mythology is deeply, deeply rooted and linked to the binary and to the patriarchy. That's just the way it is. Hopefully that's enough of a disclaimer there. Uh, so Debbie Felton came out with this quote, all female monsters spoke to men's fears of women's destructive potential. The myths then, to a certain extent, fulfill a male fantasy of conquering and controlling the female. We see this in a lot of Levantine myths. We see this in a lot of Hellene myths. We see this in a lot of myths where there is a patriarchal kind of system. You have this sense that this monster, the Lamia, you know, these women that are being presented as villainesses are playing off of a man's fear of what happens if they lose control, what happens To them, if women gain more than what they've been given. So, female villains prior to more female written literature take on a statement of patriarchy at the contextual time in which they were created. They say more about the ideal of womanhood and what constitutes divergence from it. This oftentimes comes when you have a lot of men writing women. You know, and throughout history, we don't really have that much of women writing women in mythology going back thousands of years, especially when you look at the extant literature we do have, and we don't necessarily know whether or not some stories came from women or from men, but you can kind of assume by the nature of the tale itself, the sort of motifs that are present, that the majority of them were written by men. So female-written female villains trended to either be confirmations of the patriarchal system Or forbidden aspirations of what women given freedom could become. Complex villainous women are and have always been there. Dependent on the psychosocial lens, it is also true women who symbolize a subversion or detraction from traditional gender rules within the context of the time and culture exists. They both exist in equal measure. So you're going to have that subversion villain and you're going to have that affirmation villain. So... Today we are talking about the power and presence of fictional villainesses, and it's important within that discussion to talk about archetypes and to talk about villainesses of the past to see where we came from and then where we can use those things and grow as creators ourselves. I think for me, it is also incredibly important to remind people that women were not always just cardboard cutouts sitting in the corner when it comes to creative works some of our oldest existing characters in literature and in mythology are female villains and female monsters. And that goes back thousands of years. So, although there is a prevalence of men writing women, cardboard cutout, look at me, I'm evil because I'm sexy, bah, you know, all that kind of thing going on, that might be in pulp and in things that were very quick and easy to kind of print and put out there. But that is by no means the only thing that we've had access to for thousands of years. (laughs) I think it's important to remember that because I think a lot of people have this tendency to go, Oh, well we're writing new things. Now we're writing complexity. Now, Uh, excuse me. We have always been writing complex characters in the world. You might just have to go back into the classics catalog and find them. Don't discount antiquity. As simplistic and us as complex. Like, we get both. There's a lot of stupid people in the ancient times. There's a lot of stupid people now. (laughs) So let's talk about some villains. Uh, the number one villain I want to talk about is actually twofold Sekhmet and Kali. So these are mythological figures. Sekhmet is the lion headed goddess created by Ra specifically to punish humans for disobedience. So Sekhmet has two modes just complete death and gore. And happy protecty drunk. So Sekhmet was so good at killing humans and so good at being in a violent death and gore rage that the Egyptian gods had to get together, dyed a lake of beer red so that it would look like blood and got Sekhmet to drink it so she would get a hangover and stop killing. So you have this wanton destructive figure Who, on the flip side of that, is also a very harsh motherly protector. And this is mirrored in Kali, a Hindu goddess she is currently worshipped today. So, I want to absolutely say with respect, you know, when you're looking at the myths that parallel Sekhmet and Kali, you have both this fearsome figure of death and murder and a protector of the innocent. These figures are both. So is Kali and is Sekhmet a straight up villain? No, but there's some complication there because I mean, Kali in a lot of her representations is literally shown wearing either a skirt or a girdle made of human arms. Uh, and she's got a necklace of decapitated heads, supposedly of some old lovers of hers and other people that, you know, have wronged, you know, people and, and <laughs> gotten the Kali treatment. So you have this multi-armed figure that is both a protector and both has this complex and paradoxical nature of mercy and this encompassing sexuality and creation and motherly love, while on the other side, that can become wanton destruction of evil. So incredible figure when you have both Sekhmet and Kali, and there's a few other examples, of goddesses like this in the sort of human zeitgeist going back thousands of years where you know this motherly protective energy can basically turn into what we've all heard of called the mama bear watch out because you don't want to be one of those heads on that necklace but i figured we would start in with something that's a little bit more paradoxical and then go into something like medusa And Medusa was punished for copulating with Poseidon. There are varying versions of the Medusa origin myth. So we have multiple different stories and we get this a lot in mythology and folklore when things were not necessarily always written down, when we're getting different versions of things over a series of you know centuries as well. You have to think that the Medusa story goes back thousands of years. So those stories change over time. The main points being Medusa was either seduced by Poseidon or essayed by Poseidon. It was one of the two and they vary either in Athena's temple or near enough to Athena's temple that Medusa, who had promised herself as a virgin to Athena cried for help. And when the goddess saw what was happening, the goddess punishes Medusa instead of Poseidon because she can't punish Poseidon, because Athena and Poseidon, they've got this war going on. They've had this war going on in a lot of myths. But instead of punishing Poseidon, this is something that we get quite a bit of in Hellene myth. We have the women being punished where the men are not. And so Medusa ends up basically in this vengeance state, having her hair changed into snakes with the ability of turning people into stone. Thus, this beautiful woman who was fetching even to the eyes of a god becomes this monster whose seductive nature causes people to perish, to go, you know, blind, deaf, dumb, to turn into statues. And again, we see that negative side of feminine sexuality, the negative side of lust, Um, becoming representative of the medusa and then when her head gets chopped off and in some myths the burst of blood that comes from her head when it's getting chopped off elicits the birth of the child poseidon gave her which is the pegasus the winged stallion and so out of this death comes this winged horse and that perseus gets to take and, and continue forward and go on and then her head is mounted on the aegis, is mounted on the shield of the gods, and used as a weapon of war. So this negative reflection of female lust is used as, against soldiers. It's used against people in the military complex of the time. Next, we're going to take a little bit of a drift away from Helene myth, and we're going to go to Japan. Uh, those of you who might not know, I am a huge lover of no theater. I love kabuki. Kabuki is awesome, but there is an incredible place in my heart for no theater. It is one of the oldest continuous theatrical art forms we have in human history. I love it. I listen to different performances of no theater quite a bit. It is something that I absolutely adore. In no theater, we have different masks being presentations of different characters and two different kinds of masks are the Hanya and the Oni, the female Oni. So Hanya are women who during their lifetime are filled with so much spite, so much vengeance and jealousy and violent grief that they turn from human into Hanya, into this monster. And it's usually something where she's a spurned lover or something has happened to her family members and she becomes this demonic presence, you know, this incredibly negative presence within Shintong, within no theater. And then an Oni is a woman who, in death, cannot let go of her jealousy and her spite and her need for vengeance. And so she, so she turns into a maleficent spirit. And that, again, it's so similar to the Medusa in that respect, you know, you have these women who were wronged, they cannot let go of their jealousy and their rage, and then they turn into a monster. They turn into this kind of negative force. And so that one is really interesting. If you ever want to see some no theater, there are a few documentaries online, and you can actually see entire no theater productions put on. Uh, there is a theater in Tokyo that posts their videos online. There fantastic as long as you can handle shrill noise because there is a lot of kind of drumming and a slightly shrill kind of like shakuhachi and different kinds of flutes that you'll get in some of that so be aware of the kind of cultural event that you will be watching another one this one's coming from china and this is the daishi and my apologies at pronunciation this is the representation of daishi who was a malevolent consort who enjoyed murder and torture And she was mythologized into a fox spirit in Chinese lore. So this is sort of a negative Kitsune. She was the consort of King Zhu of Shang. And that was the ending of that empire. You know, he was the last king. And she did things like, oh, I want to know what it looks like inside a pregnant woman's belly. And so the king would slice open a pregnant woman right in front of her so she could inspect it. You know, or putting 3,000 courtiers in. People within this forested area within their palace and they have to do certain deeds with each other. Otherwise, they could be potentially killed. This evil, malevolent force that this woman in history was so vilified, they turned her into a fox spirit. Again, you're taking a regular woman and turning her into something evil when she did not necessarily start out that way, but then she became evil over time. The Lamia that is a half woman, half snake. Monster, and she was, she started off as Lamia, a princess, a daughter of Poseidon, who ended up getting into a sexual relationship with Zeus, and she made the massive mistake of making Zeus happy. Not only happy, but she started to bear him children. And once Hera realized that this could be her marital replacement, Hera turned Lamia into this monster whose hunger for children and hunger for sex were so vicious. She became a uncontrollable cannibalistic monster who would fuck and murder everything she saw. And finally, one of the versions of this myth is that Zeus granted her enough mercy that she was able to gouge her eyes out. So at least she could get some rest. At least she didn't have to see it, but it was this perpetual hunger this perpetual lust, both for babies, which was perversed by her eating said babies, and by her perpetual lust uh, for sexual exploitation. And so, again, you get to see that the patriarchal fear really was the sense that women had power within the realms of sex, within the realms of motherhood, And when a woman has too much power, they have to turn her into a monster. Otherwise, she's going to be more powerful than them. And that is one of the things that brings up a lot of this kind of archetypal villainy through time when it comes to female figures. It's it's this toppling, this subversion of the traditional landscape of culture within that contextual time. You also have the Ruselki or uh, Rusalka. Uh, This is a Slavic river spirit, which we get a little bit more context for within a Polish folklore And they are usually the spirits of drowned or wronged women who sing sweetly to lure evil men to their deaths by drowning. And so they're a bit of a siren type figure, but these ones were specifically wronged women who were usually murdered or killed by their lovers, or they were, you know, mistreated in life and they could become Ruselki. And some figures within this sort of spiritual figure within rivers could be beneficial once in a while you know there are a couple of myths where a woman was able to pass or where a man who was pure of heart and who was being good to everybody around him and who was doing the right things he was allowed to cross where the evildoers around him were not and so it's this sense of justice you know if you mistreat somebody eventually that person will come back as a they'll come back as a ghost they'll you know there is retribution for actions This is within the same area of folklore that we get Baba Yaga. Uh, Baba Yaga is a cannibalistic crone who travels. She flies in a mortar and pestle and her house has chicken feet that can kind of go around to the forests. And she is another one that's incredibly dangerous and incredibly powerful, but she also can either be reasoned with or tricked out of doing evil things. So now you get um, Yvonne and the princess. You know, there's a lot of (laughs) there's a lot of stories of Polianitya. There's a lot of stories of Bogatier, AKA like the Bogatier masculine folk hero, Polianitya female folk hero within certain Slavic landscapes. There's a lot of Bogatiers who were named Ivan. (laughs) And, In one story that's quite famous, Yvonne, who married a princess, and the princess went off to quell battle in another part of her kingdom, left her husband at home and said, the one thing you must do is not go up to the tower and open the door. Never open the door of this tower. And he goes, okay, honey, love you, sweetie. Have fun at work. Bye-bye. I think I'm going to open the door of the tower and creates a hugely bad situation. He ends up having to trick Baba Yaga, but he's only able to do it with insider knowledge from people that are helping him out along the way. Uh, so Baba Yaga, she could eat you, or if you did the housework and were really sweet and really kind and behaved perfectly, you'd be okay. Similar to how the Lamia was treated as kind of the children's boogeyman, the original monster under the bed. You know, oh no, you have to do what mommy and daddy say, otherwise the, the Lamia will eat you. You know, oh, you have to do all the housework. You have to be perfectly well-behaved or Baba Yaga is going to find you in the forest and eat you. And then we have Clytemnestra, who I find is a fascinatingly complex character. This is the wife of Agamemnon in the Trojan War. And for those of you who have read the Iliad, you will be aware that Agamemnon brings all of these different Grecian kingdoms together to go forth and bring Helen of Troy back to agamemnon's brother helen's husband and they put all of their people together and they have all of the ships and they're ready to take off and the wind fails and the wind continues to fail and the weather is not going to obey and so finally agamemnon gets desperate when he realizes he's going to lose a lot of this war band, and he hatches a plot he tells his wife good news I have brokered marriage for our lovely Iphigenia with Achilles himself bring our daughter in all her bridal finery and she will marry Achilles a demigod oh my gosh the best day of her life iphigenia is so excited her father has garnered her a marriage with the greatest hero and you know he's a man of utmost glory this is amazing mommy i'm getting married And Clytemnestra is excited. She's so proud of her husband for getting such a good match. And they get there, and it's a little strange. Because the groom doesn't seem to know what's happening. It's a little strange. Why does that altar look funny? It's a little strange. What are you doing? And then her daughter is dead. Iphigenia was sacrificed on an altar in order to, quote-unquote, please the gods enough to let Agamemnon and his fleet of, you know, 10,000 ships sail. And Clytemnestra holds on to that anger of watching her daughter die in front of her because her father decided that she needed to be sacrificed. And Clytemnestra and her new lover back at home basically hatch a plot to murder Agamemnon and it is this act of utter retribution and fury level of violence. She cuts his throat in the bathtub. And as he's dying, some extant texts show that like Agamemnon's last words were like, you bitch, <laughs> like, bitch. woman," <laughs> You know, he got out one last you bitch as Clytemnestra is like, yes, I got you. That's for killing my daughter. And she was one of the great, you know, villains of her time. But this pales in comparison to Medea. I'm not talking about certain movies that happened at the beginning of the 20th century with certain people. I am talking about the original Medea. I have performed this character. Medea was a princess and a sorceress. She was a magician. And when Jason of Jason and the Argonauts needed to escape, After getting the golden fleece, he seduced Medea into joining him and helping him and his people escape. And her being incredibly in love and thinking that she would escape her father's house, she would have her own life. She's getting married to Jason, does the unthinkable and takes her little brother who came with her out of love for his sister. slices his throat, cuts up his body and throws him bits at a time off the end of the boat. Because she knew that the king who was in hot pursuit in his own ship would slow down to pick up the severed pieces of his son. Medea went to that level to protect Jason. She used her magic to protect him. She used everything she had to make sure that he was whole and that they got home. And then when they got home, they did get married and they did have children and they had a fairly contented life for a very long time. Until Jason, in all his manly wisdom, decided that his bride wasn't as young as she used to be. And so he started basically looking to marry somebody else. And he was just going to send Medea off quietly and marry somebody else. And then he was also going to take the kids. Well, he seemed to have forgotten what Medea did for him. Because what she ends up doing is, one, brokers herself a place with... Jason's enemy in a different city so that she has an escape plan two she kills their kids <laughs> and splays their bodies for him to see but he can never bury them because she also splays them on you know her winged chariot and three she makes for his new bride a poisoned gown and when the new bride puts on the poisoned gown she dies She left Jason cold and alone staring at the bodies of his children while she cackled and went, don't you dare, you're going to die. You're going to live for a long time and you are going to die alone. And she just completely decimated him. And then she went off and had her own new life in a different place, which again is another representation of women being villainous, by going against the traditional family unit and going against the masculine will of the time. And that brings us to historical
1: women. Women in history are interesting villains as well. They lived so long ago and their stories are still around. Their history has lived on and why? The first one I like is a mall cut purse of 17th century London. She grew up learning to be a pickpocket and then she evolved into a highway robber. And she was clever. She dressed in men's clothes. So they didn't know who she was for a very long time. They always considered it a man. Until she finally got caught and went to jail. And after a stint in jail she came back out. But did she change her way of life? Of course she did. She got a shop and she started selling stolen goods out of her shop. And um, she only went to jail that one time. The last that was known of her that she was um went into her dotage, running a shop, and selling stolen goods secret. And I really like her because she is proof that it is okay to let your villainess be a villain for life. Another villainess from history is Anne Bonny, who lived in the early 1700s in the Caribbean. She started off in Ireland, and she had a little testable home life in that she was the A fair child of her father's. He was not from as prominent a family as his wife. And so she didn't approve of the child. So he went on business to London and other areas. Worked their family business while she was there. They had a little contestant there. But instead of raising her as his daughter, she raised her as his son. With all the privileges that a boy had. She's dressed in boys clothes. She was being formally trained to be a lawyer's clerk, actually. And they were going along well, and she was just about ready to start into her trade. When um, her father's wife discovered the truth, and then they were like, oh crap, we got to make a run for it. So they fled to the province of Carolina. This was back in the days when it was still the colonies, before the revolution and all that. And they're trying to make a new life. And she met a pirate. Hey, this is great. This is her new boyfriend. And she got married to a pirate. Her dad didn't really approve. This pirate that she married wasn't even a captain. But she went with him. They went to a part of the Caribbean where pirates could live in safety. So it's like a pirate haven in a Caribbean area. And he back became a little bit pathetic. He wasn't earning enough. And so she's like, oh, whatever. So she was going to the inns, doing the classic selling my ale. And I don't know if you knew this, but this is a very common practice that women would make the ale. And that's how ale houses originated, by the way. And see, so she met more pirates. And there she met Calico Jack, a captain. And well, one thing led to another. She dumped her husband. She didn't just join his pirate crew on his ship. She led expeditions. He broke the tradition that women aboard ship are really bad luck. Her being aboard ship brought them considerable bounty and loot. So while he was still the captain of the ship, she was primarily in the position of, like, first mate in rank of authority. And she would be leading these actions, and and she was proved to be very good with a blade, very good with pistols, because she was raised as a boy. So, yeah. I kind of really like her life a lot. In case you haven't noticed, I might know a few details that have been written about her. And finally, I, I picked this one because she's probably the most renowned of the femme fatales, Mata Hari, from 1910s Europe during World War I. She was an exotic dancer turned courtesan. She was actually from a very wealthy family. She became a courtesan to all these military officers of all the various militaries. And being Dutch and being neutral, she could cross any border freely because she was Dutch and not involved in war, supposedly.
2: She was a spy for both sides, and she got caught selling, you know, military secrets to Germany, so they shot her. She went in her best clothes to go get shot. Like, she had a special coat tailored to her so she could die in style. Like, that takes bravery. That takes chops. She... Held her head high, and there is uh, extant literature about the people who actually, you know, the firing squad who did the deed and killed Matahari. And then being like, she took her death far more bravely than any man. Like, she walked in there with boys and stared them in the face, wearing these clothing that she purposefully designed to be the last thing that she would ever wear before, you know, she gets killed. And she just went for it you know so you look at it that way and you're like wow that is really cool and two another thing about matahari is an after her death nobody claimed her they used her for medical research her head had been displayed in an anatomical museum and then in the 1950s when they moved the collection it disappeared (laughs) somebody has matahari's head in a jar matahari's life is wild the myth of matahari you know oh my goodness We did mythological villainesses and mythological monster women. We've done some historical figures, and we have yet to talk about early fantasy and fairy tale. Starting with folktales like Cinderella,
0: um, with later versions written by Charles Perrault. you have the stepmother, the wicked stepmother in Cinderella, is a classic fairy tale antagonist.
2: I mean, the whole point of Cinderella was that Lady Tremaine, who's her name in a a lot of areas, but the wicked stepmother, she thought rightly that Cinderella, Ella, was more beautiful than her two daughters. And so in order to make sure that her two daughters were better taken care of than Ella ever would be, she turned Ella into a servant so that she could make her homely and control this girl that she'd been given because she married a widower with a child. And so she had no emotional connection to Ella. Ella was just this, you know, stepping stone that was in the way of her making sure that her daughters could have the best match possible. And so she didn't have to spread the dowry three ways. She could only push the dowry two ways, which is an incredibly important thing when you think of that era of uh, late medieval going into early Renaissance European history, especially when it comes to middling and uh, slightly upper classes. Queen of Hearts was absolutely a representation of Bloody Mary, a.k.a. Queen Mary, a.k.a. the sister of Queen Elizabeth I. She was a spoof on that, and she was a detracting of the Catholic stereotype of the Bloody Queen. So the Queen of Hearts, the reason she continues to say off with her head, off with her head, is is not making fun of, but kind of satirizing Catholic ruling history. Absolutely satirizing. A lot of
0: Lewis Carroll's work was of a satirical nature. There's one thing I particularly love about it.
2: I love how they do it. I love it. And you've also got him being an upper level mathematician. And once you get high enough in math and in physics, a lot of it becomes theoretical and metaphysics. It becomes this kind of almost philosophical science. And so you get a lot of that philosophy and things like that too, based on the fact that he was a mathematician. Like he had that analytical brain. And so he's taking that analysis into creating satire and also creating works of philosophical power, which, you know, he was encouraged to do by his mentor, George MacDonald. It's him and Henry Ryder Haggard, who is really difficult to talk about because Henry Ryder Haggard, as seen from the lens of today, is a fairly negatively opinioned person when it comes to the question of race. But back in the 1800s, you know, the first novel came out in 1887 called She. This is one of the Alan Quatermain novels. She Who Must Be Obeyed was the archetype for a powerful queen like sorceress in fantasy literature. That's where it came from. It came from Henry Rider Haggard. And you have to take a look at the character of Aisha, aka the character of she, she who must be obeyed, and see her for the complex character that he created, even though Henry Ryder Haggard says a lot of things that are incredibly outdated. He was somebody who was a colonist, a white colonist in Africa, um, although at the same time, for the time, he was incredibly complex with all of his characters, including characters who came from various tribes in, in South Africa. So take that as you will. I know that might be a little bit awkward to say, but oh gosh, <laughs> you're looking for immortal sorceress. You're looking for the stem of a lot of fantasy villainesses. You have to consider that Aisha was one of the first, if not the first major one in fiction. Plenty of villainesses that we end up getting in comic books Stand on the shoulders of these villainesses we got in works like Henry Ryder Haggard's She and Aisha. Including the villainesses that we get in Pulp Fiction, too.
0: Yeah, and so jumping forward a few decades, we're going to talk a bit about villainesses in comics.
1: One villainess that I really enjoyed is uh, Emerald Empress. She had this item called the Emerald Eye of Ekron. And she was very powerful, a piratey self, going around, conquering. She, she wanted the power of ruling. But what I really liked about it is as a component in the very end, when she dies, it is found that she never wanted to be a villainess. She had the eye of Ekron and it corrupted her and brought out this, this evilness, this villain in her. She asked to be cursed so that the emerald eye could no longer see her. And when it could no longer see her, its power, the power she had from it, was stopped. And so she withered away into dust. And it was only then that all the, the heroes realized just how old she was. Another villainess I truly enjoy is Mystique. Yeah, I know they're making her an anti-hero now, but when she came out, she was the villainess. She's a shapeshifter, able to shift into anyone and sound like anyone with near-perfect precision. And she enjoyed it. She did a lot of crime to begin with. Not only did she do it because she needed things, she did it for fun. She enjoyed it. She enjoyed playing with, with, with humans, being a mute, and she was a mutant. She kind of resented, you know, the, the anti-mutant attitude that was in there. And she became an assassin... She has now become more of an anti-hero. She was truly a villain who, rather than trying to change attitudes to be more favorable to mutants, if somebody was disfavorable, she'd just find a way to kill them. Yes.
2: Okay, so I guess as a person here who has read basically 30 years of Marvel Comics, X-Men in particular, X-Men was my jam. She's a lot like Magneto in this idea that, you know, the first thing you have to ask is which mystique same with Emerald Empress, which Emerald Empress, there have been multiple Emerald Empresses over time, including currently right now on some of the television shows that they're creating some of the cartoons, the Emerald Empress is back. So with comics, there's so many reinventions of the same character. The first thing you have to ask is which one, you know? So if you look at the more recent views of mystique, From say X Men first class and those movies that came out with Michael Fassbender and Jennifer Lawrence, that mystique started off as a hero and then was slowly pulled towards villainy, not out of evil motive, but out of survival. You know, and when you look at the 1990s mystique, when you look at both the X Men animated television show run and you look at a lot of the comics, she never intended villainy. She intended survival, but because she was a mutant, she is this example of a mutant who, under duress, she cannot help looking completely alien to everybody else around her. And so you have situations like the birth of Nightcrawler, who in many versions of Mystique is Mystique's son. She had this beautiful life with her husband in European aristocracy, and then in the act of childbirth, she turned back into her natural blue skinned form because obviously childbirth is difficult in case you haven't noticed. And so then she was condemned as a, you know, as a demon, as this as you know, she's a mutant and that kind of thing. And so she lost all of that life. Mystique was this for a long time, this sort of female counterpart to Magneto. My opinion is you cannot, absolutely cannot separate Magneto as a character from his childhood in the concentration camps, yeah, you cannot, you
1: yeah, cannot they, they, yep, they're so. It
2: was such a profound thing. You cannot separate Magneto from that little Jewish boy who lost his entire family to Nazi Germany. And I know that's a hard thing to say, but that is the origin point of Magneto. If you do not have that as his origin point, the risks that he's willing to take to save mutant kind make no sense, and I think it depowers his story. So I know several times over the course of the comics, they've kind of created ways where his superpower is, you know, the master of magnetism could like de-age himself to keep that storyline going because obviously somebody of that advanced age would be quite geriatric here in 2020, almost a hundred years later. For me, I don't think they could ever tell the story of Magneto without also telling the story of the Holocaust, nor should they. They need to keep that because that is such a profound part of why Magneto was willing to go, Charles, you did not live through what I lived through. You had a privileged lifestyle. You were abused. You still underwent hardships, but you were still privileged in comparison to what my people and I went through in that horrifically dark part of human history. I am not letting that happen again. And it was that power of, I'm not letting our people, the mutant kind, happen again. I'm not letting them go through their own holocaust. That is what empowered not only Magneto, but also brought Mystique into that fold that also brought forth this sense of vigilante justice. And for me, a lot of versions of Mystique, I see more of the vigilante, I see somebody that is doing unsavory things because she's doing it to survive. Not because she wants to and she enjoys necessarily murder, although, you know, eventually you just love what you do. I mean, I've heard. I don't know when it comes to anything like <laughs> okay. that. Oh, okay.
1: uh, You're telling on yourself now, huh, stop off. <laughs> uh,
2: I might be a martial artist, but I only hit Bob. Bob is my <laughs> body opponent bag. <laughs>
1: And I have one more villainous from the comic. And that is the Angelus from the Witchblade series of comics. And there was a TV show and everything. Now, the Witchblade is this person who, who now contains the power of the darkness that came as the agent of darkness. She had, she had the choice to use the power. The nemesis, the opposite of the darkness, is this thing called the Angelus. And this is Angelus is the order and the light. They were created at the same time and is the absolute enemy and detests the darkness. And she will do all that she can to defeat the darkness. But then there was peace made between the light and the dark, and that made the witch blade. Angelus, the, the ultimate of order and light, completely subjugates her host. They have no choice. She takes them, and she does it. They become the Angelus. They don't get to use the power. Angelus uses them, and she is absolutely ruthless and destructive with her goal. We can't talk about
2: female comic book villains that touching on Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. The important thing that you have to recognize about Harley Quinn, especially as seen in Batman the Animated Series... Is that Batman specifically states to the Joker, mind you, that Harley Quinn is the closest person to ever kill him in the entire history of Batman. That was something that Harley Quinn got to wear as a badge of honor back in the 90s. I think my favorite representations of Harley Quinn, though, are still the original Batman, the animated series. Oh, yeah. When I picture Harley Quinn, that's who I picture.
0: Actually, for pretty much all of them, except for the Joker. My Joker
2: is Cesar Romero. <laughs> from the Cesar old Batman <laughs> TV show. <laughs> but this brings us to villainesses
0: in modern film. We are starting off with the Wicked Witch of the West, which did originate in the uh, Oz books, but we're talking specifically about the MGM 1939 version of... The Wizard of Oz, that classic. She was the primary antagonist. She was seeking revenge against Dorothy for squishing her sister under that house and kind of just stalks her all throughout. Oz trying to get her get her to revenge. She's a pretty classic villain. Moving into the film noir era, we get into femme fatales from films like Mildred Pierce and Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard. Which sort of paved the way for femme fatales later down the line, like uh, Alex Forrest in Fatal Attraction. Wait, I just realized, isn't there a weird, didn't Glenn Close also play Norma Desmond at one point? Yeah. I was like, hold on a second, I didn't even plan for that connection in there. I know that Glenn Close had originally shared that she never thought of her character as a, quote, villain. She wasn't playing in generality. I was playing a cliché. I was playing a very specific, deeply disturbed, fragile human being whom I had grown to love. We've been saying this quite a bit, that villains in general should be multifaceted. They shouldn't just be one-dimensional. They should feel like somebody you you can connect to.
2: Yeah, you know, there should be ability to see them as vulnerable and human I think a lot of growing authors and I'll put myself in this like I'll I'll call it for what it is for myself too when I was first getting into writing novels it's almost so much easier to write an over the top villain that everyone can hate because then it feels like you're not necessarily making value judgments on other people's lives yeah
0: but sometimes pushing your villains a little ridiculous can make them A little more fun, like we start to see in the 90s in movies like Death Becomes Her. I think both Madeline and Helen, the two female leads, are both fun villains. I think having fun with your villains is important when you have the space to. I tend to watch a lot of campy, goofy stuff, as I said before, so this is kind of my my favorite kind of villain. And as we get closer to modern times, we start to see villains like Other Mother from Coraline. Uh, the Other Mother was a shape-shifting entity who creates parallel world to lure in Coraline. She initially appears pretty nurturing, uh, but reveals that she has sinister intentions. The Other Mother is a dark fairy tale antagonist who explores themes of temptation and the consequences of seeking an idealized version of love. And I think we can view Coraline's journey as a pretty cautionary tale. And finally, we get into Disney villains. Well, we've seen plenty of Disney villains over the years. One in particular, Mother Gothel from Disney's Tangled is a great representation of one of the more modern female Disney villains. Mother Gothel kidnaps Rapunzel and raises her in a tower to harness the magical powers of her long hair, deceiving her with false love and protection. Mother Gothel represents a manipulative and emotionally abusive antagonist. Her character explores themes of control and exploitation, adding complexity to the traditional Rapunzel fairy tale.
2: that all you rebels writers and gamers we're wrapping up another mind-bending episode of we aren't dead yet your go-to for all things ttrpg and speclet stay wild curious and keep defying the ordinary until next time hit up wadi at vredamedia.ca slash wadi that's vraeydamedi aca c-a-slash-w-a-d-y like and subscribe share with your friends check out our merch store We'll see you next week for more news, views, and hullabaloos. So keep the fires burning, the dice rolling, and the pages turning. And remember, there's always something we can do, because we We aren't aren't dead
1: dead yet. yet.